It's been just the absolute joy and privilege of my life to see how institutions can change and how we can change the institutions that we love. That we are not just here to put the stethoscope on the chest of a patient. We are here to change the future of medicine. Welcome to Moms of Medicine. I'm your host, Ali Trainer, and that was Dr. Danielle Olvetsky, who is a geriatrician and hospitalist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. This is a great conversation where we talk about her having three C-sections, two of which with pretty severe complications, going back to work just six weeks after one of her kids was born, and almost wanting to quit that first night back, having to go on bed rest, choosing to be a nocturnist, what gives her passion and drive for staying in academic medicine, and she shares a really beautiful metaphor about being in charge of your own mosaic. I absolutely love this discussion. I learned so much, and I hope you enjoy this conversation too. So Danielle, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we have worked with each other for a while, but haven't really had many one-on-one -on -one conversations, not about work. So I'm really excited to get to chat with you today. Um, and if we could just start off with you telling us who you are, um, what your role is at work and a little bit about yourself outside of work. Sure. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Ali. My name is Danielle Olvetsky. I am a, a hospitalist, a geriatrician. I tend to work a lot of nights, which I love. And I uh, have some administrative roles here at the hospital where one of them is I'm the physician director of the Office for Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. I'm also a mother of three kids. Um, and I'm from the Caribbean originally which is an important part of my identity, of course. And I definitely, an important part of my identity is I'm a black female physician in academia as well. That's what I would use to describe myself too. Great, well, thank you so much for that intro. Um, and we'll kind of jump right in here. You mentioned you have three kids uh, and uh, we talked a little bit before about kind of your experience with having your kids, but I was hoping, you know, just, kind of whatever you would like to share about kind of your early experiences with having kids as a woman in medicine? I think for me, um, I was really lucky um, when I was having my kids that I, my residency classmates were also going through the same thing. So in my class, I bonded with three women and we all ended up kind of having kids at the same time and all, you know, remaining in academia in some shape or form. And all struggling through the same thing. So it was lovely to have that group where you could really uh, be vulnerable, ask about this, ask about that. And that was really supportive. So it, it didn't feel lonely because I think we were all kind of experiencing the same challenges about how do we balance everything. And so that did was you, great. So sorry to interrupt there. Did you have your, your kids in residency or these were just, you know, friends from well, residency? We had, we had been friends in residency. And so, but we all became, um, one of my friends had them as a fellow but we all finished residency and started having kids at the same time. Okay, gotcha. Kind of Perry Fellowship, like new attending, having children. Okay. And I think you had shared before, did you have C-sections with all of your children? I did. Just... I had I had three. Okay. I had three C-sections because I had no choice. If I didn't, I would have died and the baby would have died. So I had to have, oh I was going in. I had to have C-sections. And um, I was really blessed. I had some complications after the first two. Um, but then with the third one, I think they figured out everything. So that one was the smoothest one. Thank goodness. It was the smoothest one. Um, it, it was hard. I think 
I was really blessed that I had um, my in-laws and my family who kind of came and really took over a lot of the running of the house because my husband was also working a lot too at the time. And so between them, I really had that support. As I was telling you, I had to go back after six weeks when I had my third child. And that was the lowest. That was the lowest of the low. I never forget the moment when I looked up and thought, oh my God, I'm going to work next Monday. And it was Thursday. And I said, oh my heavens. And the kitchen was a mess. The sink was overflowing with dishes. I remember the moment I was in the kitchen when I was, I was going back to work. And like with my first child and my second child, I had been really good about amassing that uh, breast milk war chest for going back to work because all my colleagues had told me about that. But somehow with the third kid, it was just so chaotic. I remember thinking, oh my heavens. And running around to get the pumping supplies to build the pump and everything. Where were they? And just, it was just really such a horrible thing. And when I went to work, it's the only time in my life where I've gone to work and I almost quit that moment. It was my first night back at work. And it was just, I just felt so overwhelmed. It was a busy night, lots of admissions. I was exhausted because I hadn't slept as much as I would have going in. And my colleague who came to relieve me was a male, a male colleague. And he doesn't remember this, but I remember it clearly. He's like, Danielle, I'm so sorry. I was, I just kind of broke down and confided in him. He said, Danielle, it's going to be okay. I can't explain how or why, but it's going to be okay. And in that minute, I felt so much better being able to share that with him. And he was such a, a great person to talk to at that moment, because I almost quit that minute and said, I cannot possibly do this. And it was just, I think it's like a really good example of how we can all be allies for each other. I didn't know him well, but I was just so beyond myself. And he just like looked at me and said, Danielle, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. It's going to be fine. That's amazing. I think it speaks to the power of just having a listening, supportive ear because, you know, this, this man couldn't, he couldn't take off the pressure of having to pump or recovering from major abdominal surgery or caring for your infant at home, but just having someone to be like, I'm here for you. It's okay. It's so powerful. Um, Absolutely. And uh you don't have to share if you don't feel comfortable, but you, you mentioned kind of some serious complications with your, your C-sections before what, what happened there? And did that impact so the, how you thought about going back to work? So definitely the first one with my son went to the ICU the minute he was born. So that was really rough. Um, and I had fallen down an escalator while I was pregnant. It was, you know, the one thing I would like to use is opportunity to say anybody who is pregnant out there, all the doctor moms who are pregnant out there, we are not super women. We need to understand that we need to take care of ourselves. If I could go back and do one thing differently, when I had my first son, I was just a new attending. And you know, you have this sense that you've got to be invincible. You've got to, I, I felt, I realized now I didn't understand it, but you know, you come out with residency feeling like you have to be a warrior and I'm pregnant, but that doesn't mean anything. I was like eight and a half months pregnant, running to codes. What was I doing? Like, you know, I almost tried to pick up a patient off the ground and the nurse had to like put themselves physically in my path. So I would not with my big belly bend down and pick up a patient. You know, just, I think we have to understand that, you know, we are pregnant and we need to slow down and the time will come for us to pick up medicine afterwards. But 
And so then, you know, so I went into early labor, actually. So I had to go on bed rest and I felt like a complete failure because I had to go on bed rest. And it was just, again, I, I read this, I heard this special NPR about um, when babies are born premature and that really helped me to embrace bed rest better, actually. I felt like I was failing my colleagues and I was taking off the schedule. You know, they had to find people to cover for me because my boss was totally fine. Didn't, you know, he was great. Didn't care about that at all. But I felt terrible. And it was, I think we, one thing I would say in retrospect, even though we're doctors, when we become pregnant, we just have to understand like our limitations. So it was called, and then the second time I had bleeding, I had to be rushed back to the OR to evacuate a hematoma. And I came home with a wound that would never close. Like, oh, I'll never forget that. Coming home with that C-section wound that would not close, just oozing, dripping everywhere. And that was really hard. But my my mother and my aunt-in-law, my husband's aunt came from California and she was there with me too, which was great. And I slowly healed. And then the third time was just more routine. Just like opening a zipper, taking out the baby and closing back up the zipper. That was more routine. But it was still rough leaving three young kids at home and coming back to work. And, you know, why do you think it's so hard for us to accept our limitations? Because when you say like, oh, I was running to a code eight months pregnant, it does sound crazy. But I think a lot of people listening would be like, yeah, I'm doing the same thing. Like, why is it so hard for us to accept that? I think we've worked so hard to get to have this seat at the table. I think we feel that if we don't show up as tough, as strong as everybody else, we're going to lose our seat at the table. And if I could say one thing in this podcast, I want to say, you won't, you won't lose your seat at the table. So, you know, just, I think I didn't have anyone telling me that at the time. So I would kind of give us all a permission to say that you will not lose your seat at the table. I appreciate that. And so you mentioned too, you know, you go back to work, three young kids, you have this rough night, but for you, it was really important to stay in academic medicine. So maybe if you could share a little bit more about what kept you in and why, why you are still in academic medicine years later. I would love to, I think it's really important. Um, Academic medicine allowed me to change lots of diapers, see my kids grow up see all of them take their first steps. And I think the flexibility of being able to dial back, dial up as you need it to, I think it's hard to get that in another profession. I really don't think it's possible to say, you know, I was telling my boss, well, I really just want to work Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for this year. But next year, I would really like to work, you know, how about Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, like, you know, it's really hard to be able to craft that without repercussions. And I think that's the number one gift academia gave me. I fell into this job of being a nocturnist, which compensates at a higher rate than the daytime, which I didn't truly appreciate, but it really paid me for minute per minute of being in the hospital at a level that was really helpful in terms of how expensive childcare was. Being able to support my family back home was really helpful, help out my sisters from time to time if they needed it. And it was really nice to have that cushion financially because I don't come from a family of means. That was the other thing. And then the third thing I love about academia was the flexibility where you were able to kind of um, continue to morph into what you want to be. So I started off as a nocturnist, not really sure, still wanting to do geriatrics, was really allowed to be involved in this whole uh, geriatrics care redesign on the inpatient, which was really so much fun. 
planted some more medical education, you know, so you can really be very, very flexible. And um, I think that's the fourth thing I love about academia, maybe I'm just biased, of course, are the colleagues, right? I just think that we're all really just jazzed about how do we push medicine to the next level? And then when you're surrounded by young people, I just came from giving grand rounds when I talked about this, how young people make us so much better. I think that's the joy of academic medicine. And then the last thing, I'm really committed to changing the future of medicine. And you can only change the future of medicine, I firmly believe, if you are in academic medicine. I know you can join these think tanks and everything else or, you know, these uh, other institutes. But unless you're able to shape the future minds that are going into medicine, I think it's really hard to have enough impact on medicines. That's one of the other reasons I stay. And also I know the power of representation. I didn't see anyone who looked like me necessarily when I was going to medical school or wasn't very close with them. And I really struggled to see if I could ever have a seat at the table. And so I'm really committed. I feel like medicine saved me. I feel so lucky I ever found this profession I'm so committed to making sure every physician out there, any person who thinks that they could want to be a doctor, I'm committed to breaking down the barriers so that they can also join the profession because I feel like it's it's saved me and given me a life I never expected. So for all those reasons, I'm completely rapidly biased in favor <laughs> of academia. I love that. And I I think, you you know, you do make a great case for why there are so many great things about staying in academic medicine, but, but it is hard, you know, you had three kids and you have a husband and you have all these responsibilities and there are a lot of pressures in academic medicine. And, you know, you mentioned that one of the things that's important to you is being able to drive change and being able to, you know, show people that a woman from the Caribbean who identifies as a black woman can be here and, you know, make this happen despite all of these challenges. And, you know, where, where does that drive come from? Cause it's hard. There's a lot against you sometimes, but you are so passionate. So where does that passion and drive come from? That's a great question. I'm really blessed in that I have a lot of, well, I have a lot of great support from the outside. And I think internally, the passion is there. One of it is, you know, my sister who died from sickle cell complications is the only reason I ever went to medical school. And she's in my heart always. I saw firsthand the racism that she experienced and also the anti-obesity bias. And it remains with me forever in every patient that I see. So I think that keeps me committed to making sure that we never forget how we have to be there for our patients and to teach our trainees how we can be there for our patients. That's really important to me. That's the drive. The other thing I think is I'm, I'm really overall so happy to be here. And I think that also creates that capacitance. I mean, I cannot not mention our chair, Mark Fidel, who has been just such a huge supporter for me You know, I went to him at one of the lowest points in my time after facing a lot of racism. And he has just been so committed. So Danielle, keep going. Like, you know, he just makes me laugh. He's always, Danielle, keep going, keep going, keep going. You know, in that funny way, 
he's got lots of stories and allegories that keeps me going. I mean, also, of course, my parents, my family, my kids. I think people don't think, I think being a parent makes you a better doctor. I really want to go out on a limb and say that because I think um, every time I go home and I'm with them, they teach me so much about the possibilities in life, the endless possibilities. And I kind of come away from them most of the times feeling refreshed and just ready to hit it again. And lastly, you know, one thing, when I was at one of my lowest points and I almost left the BI, someone told me that the biggest predictor of the future is the past and that I should leave the BI and I should go where there are more black doctors, blah, blah, blah. And I'm so grateful I didn't listen to them because I don't believe the past is the predictor of the future. It's been just the absolute joy and privilege of my life to see how institutions can change and how we can change the institutions that we love. And I always try to tell our trainees that, that we are not just here to put the stethoscope on the chest of a patient. We are here to change the future of medicine. And I think that that has been so exciting. All the curriculum that is now existing at Harvard Medical School that was never there when I was a medical student. The ways that we try to holistically care for patients that didn't exist when I went to medical school. It really gets me so excited about all the things that we can accomplish. So I think that's where the energy comes from. And sure, there are disappointments. Sure, there are people who tell you no. Sure, there are people who look at you like you're crazy. Sure, sure, sure. But I think the fire inside is like unquenchable. I just know what we can accomplish together. I love that. There's so much there that I want to ask you more about. I'm like making mental post-it notes of everything. But the first thing I wanted to ask you a bit more is you mentioned Mark Seidel gave you a lot of good advice. And if there are any pearls you can share that you got from him or other mentors or things you've picked up along the way that you want to share with a larger audience? Definitely. I think my biggest pearl came from Mark recently. Like I was telling you, um, I went to see him with like a, a picture. I'm much better at pictures than words. We have to always fill out these forms, but for me, I thought, gosh, I need to just map this out, like draw it in. And I drew it out and he actually asked me to draw it out because I was going to take on one more job. He said, how is this job going to fit into your career plan? He asked me. So that forced me to draw it out, you know? And so um, I drew it out and I went to him and he said, Danielle, you know, I was like nervous to go meet with someone to ask them for help or da -da -da. he goes, Danielle, you are in charge of making your own mosaic and you need to pick the tiles and tiles need tiles from each other. People ask me for tiles all the time. I go and ask people for tiles myself. And so just having him give use that analogy of picking your tiles, like every day I wake up empowered to pick my tiles, to make the mosaic that I want to make. And that, that is, you know, pleasing to me and represents success to me. And that was just such a powerful, empowering vision. I think a lot of times, especially in academia, we feel like we are powerless. It's another cog in the wheel, going through the motions, having to do this, do that. But I think that example of being able to pick your tile is so powerful. And 
I think in academia, especially where we are, you know, being where I am at Harvard Medical School, for example, I feel like there's just so many tiles to pick from. It can be hard and intimidating. So I think it's important to have that empowerment, someone telling you, go and pick your tiles. I think that's just one of the best pieces of advice. And I think about it every morning when I wake up, what tile am I going to pick today? That's a great perspective. Um, you also mentioned that you feel like sometimes being a doctor or sorry, being a mom makes you a better doctor. And I would love to hear just a little bit more about that. Cause I think sometimes there is this thought in medicine that anything that pulls some of your energy or time away from your job might impact your job negatively. So how has being a mom impacted you positively? I, this is going to sound terrible, but you know, when my kids are fighting, I actually do use my conflict resolution skills on them. I do practice it on them before I go to work. So they make a great audience for practicing because my kids are old enough where they understand and reason and think. So they make a great audience for practicing, you know, conflict resolution, you know, with them, what's in it for me. I use that all the time to get my kids to come around to what we have to do, like what's in it for them? Why on earth should they ever listen to me and do what I say apart from me being their mother? So I get lots of practice on that. I think the other third thing is um, it, it, it teaches you, you know, as in academia, we are charged, well, maybe as medicine, we are charged with being stewards for our patients. That is our role. You know, Virchow said it best, and was it 17 something or 18 something that, you know, the physician is the advocate of the poor. And so I think, you know, it, you know, being at home with kids where you are there for them and you are also stepping back, looking, where's the ship going? It's very similar to when you're a physician caring for patients. I feel like things are unexpected. Things don't go as planned. And you're always every day, like reevaluating, what should I be? Where should I be going? So I think being able to apply those skills in a different, unpredictable arena really helps me. Like when I'm on at nights, for example, that is completely unpredictable. And you really have to lead a team. You have to lead a team and you've got to whip them. What's in it for me? Why should I do what she's asking me? You know, I think it's, it's really helpful. I mean, the last thing I'll say, I think the reason why, you know, these other parts of you are so important, they protect against burnout. You know, I think that, um, I feel rejuvenated by my home life. And then I, when my home life, you know, I definitely love to come to work. I always tell people I'm running away from home when I come to work, you know, I, that then you get renewed again when you face being able to go home again. So I think a lot of people have felt that, uh, you know, family life can get in the way of medicine. I think that family life really enhances the position, the empathy that you have, you know, um, the different perspectives that your children give you and being responsible and the people that you meet because of them as you have to negotiate their lives or empower them. I think a big part of parenting is empowerment. And we're also trying to empower our patients. So I think it's very similar transferable skills. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you had also mentioned, you know, along these lines of empowering your children, empowering your patients, empowering the next generation of physicians. And you had shared with me, um, you know, prior to this conversation, some of your family background and how, where you come from and your parents come from, how that really is a big drive for you in both your role as a mom and your role as a physician. So I was hoping you could share a little bit more about your background. 
Sure, no, definitely. I think that my background, as I said, I'm from a tiny island called Trinidad and Tobago, really tiny. And I think um, what I take from that background, my parents always had this focus on education, which I think is very common actually in African-American families and Black families too. So, you know, it was very much understood that we were going to go on and go to school, etc. I think what my family background has given me in addition to that is that ability to persevere and that resilience. Like my parents lost everything in Hurricane Katrina. My dad had to rebuild the house with his own hands. Before that, my dad came to this country with nothing but a suitcase, had to start all over again. We were almost homeless. My aunt took me in. And I think those experiences in life really teach you that life is hard, yes, but my parents taught me that even though life is hard, it's a yes and life is beautiful. So my parents still are filled with laughter. We laugh often, you know, um, even in our moments of sadness, we find joy. And I think that that is a story that resonates within me. And so I went to historically black college and university. And that's also where I saw that story play out in, in real life through the African-American experience, you know, I had been black in many other countries in the world, like in Nigeria, in England, in Trinidad and Tobago, but being black in America is just such a unique, singular experience. I'm so grateful I went to historically black college and university because there it allowed me to really understand the African-American tradition a little bit more. I still don't, I still wish I knew more about it. And I'm always trying to learn and read and make sure I understand. But um, it, it really allowed me to understand maybe what my parents didn't explicitly tell me, that as a Black person, I am part of a, a, a long line of people who have persevered, have endured hardship, and have really created a better life for the next generation coming behind them. And I guess I feel that deep pride of being part of that chain. And it really inspires me with every single thing I'm doing today. And I always try to explain, I think it's hard for people to understand. You know, my husband always teases me, like whenever you see a black person, I always tell them hi. He's like, oh my gosh, Danielle, you know. But I think it's hard to explain what the African-American culture does for a black person coming to this country. It feels very much like being embraced like a hug. So when I was a resident, none of the, most of the attendings would never talk to me, would never give me the time of day. But the, the EVS staff who cleaned the hospital, those they always were there for me. Doc, how are you doing? What's going on? How are you doing? And they would always be like, keep going. And the support they give you, you are part immediately of that community. And they're thrilled when you succeed and they celebrate when you succeed. And so I think my background coming from, you know, a black family in the Caribbean, the resilience, the joy, meeting the, you know, African-American culture and the historically black college university really prepared me for this journey I was gonna take on by entering medical school. You know, the experiences of racism, my experience as a medical student and then as a physician going on, I think it really prepared me even for the role that I have today and for what I hope I can do to try to inspire the next generation to keep going and to carry the torch. That was beautiful. Thank you. Um, and how do you, you've clearly had quite an extensive experience there that maybe a lot of people listening may not have personal experience with either from, you know, having a colleague like yourself or not having gone through that themselves. So I, I think a lot of us are trying to 
learn and educate ourselves so that we can be allies and also just, you know, be kind, compassionate humans. So if there's anything more that you could share about, you know, how your experiences has impacted you as a physician and a mom and things that, you know, maybe a woman in who's, you know, 20 years behind you and and wants to be you or someone who just wants to be a friend and a colleague, what, what should we know? So I can, I can give examples from my colleagues at work who are so supportive, who are not black, not URIM, but incredibly, one of them would always be like, come, let's go for a walk around Fresh Pond because we live close together in Fresh Pond. We go for a walk. We talk then, um, you know, just people in the hallway. I think, um, I think one thing I love about my boss is that he's very careful about who he picks to work in our group. So we keep that culture alive of, you know, that great group of people that you really enjoy working with, even when you're at night. I think that's very helpful. I also give an example of one time when I was with one of my white male colleagues who taught me something I'll never forget. There was another white female um, attending who was leading this teaching course on procedures. And I just totally turned to my white male colleague to ask him, how do I do this? Almost negating her teaching role, but I didn't see it, but he saw it. And he was like, Danielle, why don't we ask such and such because they're leading the course. You know, I think that's what an ally does. An ally has the emotional intelligence, reads the situation and tries to correct it in real time. And I immediately apologized and I'll never forget that. But I'm so glad that that person is such an ally. Allies serve on our DEI committees who are not URIM, but they're still committed to getting the work done. I've had so many allies that, you know, I have another ally in one of the fellowship programs. We're always texting, talking, scheming. Any person of color that comes to his fellowship program, he always sends them to me so I can meet with them. I think there's so much that allies can do. I think the number one question is to be curious and to say, you know, like to be curious about how can I be a better ally? And then there are so many resources that once you are curious, you read, I think it becomes obvious to notice those instances, like what my white male colleague noticed, how could I jump in here and write the ship? You know, I think it teaches you that you can do that. Absolutely. I think that's great advice. And, you know, we've, we've been spending the last few minutes or so talking about kind of where your passion and drive comes from and how education was important with your family. And there are so many things you love about academic medicine, but I was hoping you could share a little bit like kind of more nitty gritty details. How do you actually make your life work? Because you do have a husband, you have three kids, you have bills to pay. So what are some of the ways that you and your family have made things work? Cause it's hard. (laughs) It's hard. It's very, you know, it's very expensive to live in Boston. I think the one piece of advice I would give, which was something that we kind of inadvertently accidentally did. And I see a lot of my young professional colleagues did the same thing and it pays dividends. So living in Boston, if you're living in Boston, living in, um, San Francisco. San Francisco is awful. So I don't know how to give advice about that. But but definitely here in Boston, the minute once the market crashed and we bought our first place, and that still is the best investment we have ever made. And every sacrifice we took. So when we got married, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment. You know, we didn't get to a two-bedroom. We just saved the money, took out that loan, and bought that first place. It's the best investment we ever made. And then once the property went up again, then we were able to sell and buy another house. So that's the one thing I would say is 
it's hard because when you're living in a city, you've got to balance how close you want to live to the medical center with how much rent you pay. But if you can try, as soon as you have the opportunity that you're going to buy in a good neighborhood, buy a small place in a good, solid neighborhood where you know it will go up, you have to squish together. At one point, there were eight of us in that tiny place because my in-laws were there too, right? You have to squish together. But it, it's the best investment we made. I think that's the one of the realistic pieces of advice is to decide what's important we have one old secondhand car and you know I long to get an electric car maybe when my kids are kind of a little bit older we'll do that next but you've got to be really realistic about that my husband bikes everywhere third thing I do is I think um I try I do work I'm blessed I know because I love seeing patients so whenever I have to make extra money I do pick up extra shifts but that may not be the answer for everybody. If you don't like picking up extra shifts, try to become a consultant. There are different ways where you can make different, um, you know, different amount of money. I think the money is real and you really want to be financially comfortable so you can enjoy your life. And then the last thing is don't, I was going to look into this more. I just had all my loans forgiven because I work with a nonprofit. And if you spend 10 years or so working with a nonprofit, you can get your loans forgiven. Don't forget about looking for those avenues as well, because the financial pieces are so real. Simple stuff like if you, especially when you have kids, oh my God, once you buy groceries, you can't eat out. And my kids know that role very well, you know? So again, it's, it's all those things because the money issues are truly real, especially when you live in these expenses like Boston, Cambridge, New York, it's very expensive. Oh, and the other thing I'll say is when you take your job, advocate for yourself, especially as a woman, woman, women don't ask, ask, ask for those tiles, ask for what you need. It may not be money, but ask for those tiles. And, you know, I think that's what the advice I would say. And how did you learn to advocate for yourself and ask for those tiles? Was it, did you have a great mentor or have you been burned no. in the past? What happened? No. My husband, he was like, so he negotiated his when he got tenure at Harvard. Oh my goodness. He was intense about what he wanted and he wasn't backing down. And I remember taking notes from that. And so when I had to negotiate again, it was really through him that I, I was like, wow, this is what I truly need. And I could explain why, and I could ask for it. And I think the way, I think for a lot of us, especially as women, what we ask for usually are things that we need to help us do our job better. No. So I think whenever really, it's the rare times where we're asking for things that are totally just for us alone. But usually what I'm asking for is to be able to do my job better. And so it's also always good when you couch it in terms of like, I've gone to Mark for sure. and been like, look, if you truly want this initiative to work, you know, this is what we need. How committed are you to this? Really? You know, <laughs> that's an amazing way to frame it. I love that. So I, I think that's why I think women don't ask, but never forget that you're not just asking for yourself. And if you are, that's totally fine, but you usually are asking for the things that you need to make the position work, which is only going to benefit the hospital or the institution in the end. So, yeah, that's great. Um, and I know your kids are a little bit older now, but when your kids were young, so you had three kids, how, how did you make things work at home? What sources of help did you get? And how would you advise other people who are like, I want to have more than one kid. How do I, how do I make that work? So first thing I would say, I, I always tell people in medicine, have as many kids as you want. I would have had four, but my husband said, are you crazy? So we stopped at three. 
But what I would see, and I totally do not have it perfect. No way. What was helpful were my in-laws, like just take the help, you know, use that opportunity to, to, to build a stronger bond with your in-laws. That has just paid dividends for me. I was blessed that I had great in-laws anyway, so it wasn't that hard, but I could have, you know, nitpicked over the small things or the way they did things. Don't even, as long as the kids are safe, just say thank you, you know, and then they're there for you. They're there for you. And then also sitting with my parents, I could nitpick over how they did it or whatever else, but oh, no, 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 no. I was just grateful that they were there to help me. So that's one thing I would say that helped a lot because at one point we were paying like $7,000 a month for childcare. So in any way we could like offset that, like we would have my parent, my parents would come and my nanny wouldn't come so I could save us some more money, you know. My in-laws would come for a month. That would save us some more money because my other than they work part-time. And the other thing that made it work, I was really blessed. I mean, I think this is the great thing about being in places like Cambridge is that, or Boston, is that you're surrounded by working parents who are balancing the same thing. So we had this unwritten rule, no matter how many kids, only one working parent supervising all of them. And there'd be like seven kids, whatever it was, you know? And so that was the other rule, right? You can't waste seven working parents' time. No, you can't do that. So that was also something that I thought was a great source of support is just having a lot of working parents around me too who knew what I was going through. So I think those are the ways that you make it work. And then you forgive yourself. I think we as women always beat ourselves up about, are we doing enough? I'm not doing enough for my child. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think you just have to, Am I doing my very best? And as long as you feel like you're doing your very best, I think you've got to be at peace with that. Yeah. And how did you build that network of working parents? T- tell me so how. Lucky. <laughs> I was so lucky. I was so lucky. Again, we happened where my where we bought our small place was Harvard Junior Housing. So of course there were other people there with younger kids. And so they just became, it was like living in a, a kibbutz, like a commune. It was wonderful. And so my kids would run around with these other kids. And um it really became uh, the the parents of my kids' friends were really the people who would be one 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 parent, no matter how many kids you have, one parent. You know, that's how it became, you know. And there are times when they had to get to work. And I'd be like, sure, just drop the kids off, you know. And then if I had to go, then we could drop the kids off by them. And so that was really nice. And it continues with carpooling. Always try, I always try to give because then you know if you can give and create that good karma, you'll always get it back. Always. You know, it's, it makes you feel good too, not just like an underhand thing. That's very smart advice. Got to find my, my network. <laughs> um, yeah. And the, and the other thing you do is a daycare too. You'll have playdates with your kids and their parents come over to your house. Always say yes to a playdate, unless the kid is a disaster, but always say yes because <laughs> <laughs> then That's you can hilarious. get a break too. You can get a break too. And yeah. set the rules, set the rules of the play date. You both parents can come, but if you have to work, tell the parent, you know, listen, I would love to chat with you, but I have this thing due tomorrow. I just need to work while the kids play and feel empowered to make those choices that just benefit you. I love that. Um, so I think we have maybe a few minutes left here. Are those are I think the main things I wanted to ask you about, but I know you have so much experience and so much history that if there's anything else that you would like to share, I'd love to hear it. 
So I just want to say thank you so much for this opportunity. And I'm just grateful if my advice could help a younger version of myself or somebody else that's kind of starting. I'm so grateful because I think there's a lot of self-doubt. Can I truly do this? Can I truly balance this all? And I just want to empower us to believe that, yes, we can. And just find those mentors out there. Right now, I'm really mentored by a circle of incredibly successful women physicians. And I feel so lucky I get to be in their shadow every day because they teach me and they show me they all have kids. And they show me that it is incredibly possible to be successful in academia and balance it all. And I'm just grateful for that opportunity. I love that. I do have one final question for you too, because I know you mentioned one of the reasons that you love academic medicine and why you stay is because you want to be an agent for change. Um, this is this question could probably be a whole podcast in itself, but what are you know the main things that you feel passionate about trying to change to make things better for the next generation? So it's 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 so simple. I think it comes down a lot to access, and it's access for our patients, it's access for our trainees, and I feel very committed to that. And I think um, one thing that we've worked really hard on that I'm super proud of, you know, we've used to have actually a lot of incidents where some patients could be, um, you know, uh, very racist to our healthcare professionals. And so we've done a lot of education about how do we call patients in, not out, but in to the fact that we are here to serve them. But it's really impossible unless we're all respectful to each other, you know, because we will lose a lot of our health professional workforce unless we are able to address that. When it comes to patients, I think now it's becoming mandatory that we've got to screen for social determinants of health. How do we really look at the holistic patient and see how can we truly care for them? Putting in um, geriatric safeguards for our older patients has been like one of the joy and privilege of my life. So I feel like it really comes along, comes full circle of how do we improve the care of our patients? And the number one way that we improve the care of our patients almost is like, how do we care for ourselves? You know, it's so I, I could talk, it's true, it's a whole podcast in itself. There's so much work being done in these spaces. And last thing I'll say is how do we better connect our academic medical institutions to our communities? It's something that I feel so at BADMC, last thing I'll say, you know, we, 60 years ago, our president made it clear that we had to go to underserved neighborhoods and care for those patients. And I feel very proud, but I carry that legacy forward. And I'm always thinking about how do I carry that legacy forward? So I think in one summary, it's access, inclusion, and belonging. That's perfect. I, I just have to call out too. I love that you said a couple of times that you're proud of yourself and you should be proud, but I think sometimes it's hard for us to say that, but you're doing great work. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, know, you so much for having me. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you did, please leave a rating or a review. It really does help people find us. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions for guests, feel free to email me at momsofmedicine at gmail.com. And I'll be back again in two weeks with another episode.